Today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, Lazarus taxon and some species that we thought were pretty cool that fit this description. And uh, the the name itself might be self-explanatory to some people, maybe some people that enjoy Batman comics or other forms of media from DC. Uh, I guess you may also know the term from the Bible. I did not <laughs> until doing research for this podcast, but I guess that tells you how much of the Bible I've read. Um, I <laughs> also just... tells you how many comic books I've read because I have no idea. What <laughs> oh, no? It's like everybody just comes back to life in comic books, especially Batman, um, because they get put in a Lazarus pit. Mm, and then yeah, they come yeah, back to life. I mean, yeah. I, I'm guessing they got the name from the Bible. Since no, it came no, first, it was definitely Batman. <laughs> it was definitely Batman. Batman, then the Bible. Well, um, you know, not to be cooler than you, but I I know it from poetry, um, specifically T. S. Eliot's "The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock," uh, which is an incredibly long poem. Yeah, I definitely know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very familiar. Later, with that. later off, uh, later on in the play, he talks about I am. Uh, Lazarus raised from the dead something like that it's uh, quoted actually in the horror movie It Follows which is really cool but did, it's my favorite poem did the, the, um, did the poem come before the bible no oh okay <laughs> <laughs> poem was uh, uh, like mid 19th century so close very much C- close <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> only a couple thousand years in yeah, the yeah. scale of the Megatherium club that's like nothing yeah yeah fair enough yeah yeah <laughs> That's oh yeah true, cool. All right, well, Sean, for those who have not read the Bible, who have not read in comics, or have not read this one <laughs> poem, uh, what it what does it mean? Yeah, so there's a couple ways to use this phrase, I guess, depending on what perspective you're you're taking. If if you're a paleontologist looking at the fossil record, a Lazarus taxon is a taxa that disappears for one or more periods in, in the fossil record. Uh, let's, for example, let's say you're digging up something, you're looking at a rock layer that's 200 million years old, and you're, you're coming across this species. And then, then you get to some rock layers that are 150 million years old, and you, you don't see the species anymore, and you're like, ah, it must have went extinct. You know, there's 50 million years in there, a lot, a lot can happen. But then you get to this rock layer that's 100 million years old, and oh, lo, lo and behold, the species pops back up. Well, that, that is uh, one example of a Lazarus taxon. Uh, it's come back from the dead, if you will. But that's the paleontologist's perspective. Um, maybe that wasn't a great example, but I think you get the picture. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's there. It's not there. And then when you expect it to be there, and then it's back. And then it's there again, yeah. <laughs> but if you're an ecologist... Uh, Lazarus taxon is a species that was thought to have been extinct but then rediscovered so it didn't need to necessarily disappear for 50 million years it just needs to have you know people thought it was extinct and then you know it it was and found then it again. comes back to life yeah just just like the Lazarus it comes back to life and there, there's a number of examples of Lazarus taxon ranging from fish to trees to smaller flowering plants and even mammals of various sizes. There, there are even examples alive today that were thought to be extinct since the Cambrian, which for those of you who don't know is 539 to 485 million years ago. Uh, t- talk, talk about a jump in the fossil record and a surprise to any scientists that uh, you know, made that discovery. 
And I, I also do want to point out that a Lazarus taxon does differ from living fossils. I'm using air quotes right now, but you can't see them. Um, and maybe we could do an episode one day on living fossils. But living fossils are extant, or as we learned in the last episode, thanks to Zach, a, a species that's alive today. They, they appear to, uh, but so an extant uh, living fossil species appears to have changed so little when comparing them to fossil remains that uh, are considered identical. So if you're looking at uh, like uh, crocodiles, for example, some, some crocodiles are a good example of living fossils where if you look at uh, fossil records and compare them to today, they have changed very little. And this is a good example of a living fossil, but something can be a living fossil and a Lazarus taxon. And I think at least one example that we will discuss today is both, but I don't want to spoil what that is. Um, but today's theme was uh, suggested by Zach. And Zach, do you want to kind of briefly discuss why you thought of this idea or uh, how it came to be? Um. Yeah, so... As many of you, many of our listeners, all all of you may know that um, one of our uh, collective interests is fossils, right? All of us were interested in dinosaurs as kids and interested just in, I don't know, all of the fossil record. And then, and I'm, I am in forestry. And so to find out that there is a tree, a really actually incredible tree that was discovered first as a fossil and then uh, was found later to actually be living still, like the same exact species living in a small area, a remote area of China. Uh, I don't know, it just, I feel like it fits everything that the Megatherium Club stands for, you know, adventure, uh, fossils, and just cool things cool creatures and organisms that uh, that really interest us and to this day this tree ever since i learned about it is one of if not like my favorite tree that is out there for many reasons not just because it's a, a lazarus taxa or a living fossil it is just a genuinely awesome tree and yeah i'll talk about why in a little bit but first, it's now shout out corner. So we would like to give a shout out to our number one fan, uh, Dora Mwangola from our lab back in graduate school or Zach and I's lab. She was very excited to hear that she's going to get a shout out from us. So shout out to you, Dora. Woo! We love you. Thanks for listening. And if you want a shout out, just text us if you know us i'm assuming you probably know us if you don't email us uh we'll give you a shout out you can also where oh. where can they email us spencer oh that's a yes that's a good <laughs> question zach and then sean i'll let you step back in our uh, email is megatherium club podcast at gmail.com should be in the show description notes on whatever platform you're listening to uh if you need to double check and you can also find us on x which i don't it's Twitter. Come on. It's Twitter. Twitter. But <laughs> X at Megatherium Club Podcast, but the, the at is just Megatherium Pod because uh, Megatherium Club was taken. But yeah, you can tweet us there and we can uh, talk to you guys. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them as well. Sweet. 
Uh, and so the, I'll transition into today's sponsor. Today's sponsor, is, this episode is brought to you in part by Rocky Mountain Sticker Company, located out of Westminster, Colorado. They make high quality stickers, vinyl, they're vinyl covered. So you have the sticker and, and you can, you know, it's just like a sticker. But then they also put this like really fancy like laminate over it. So it won't lose its color in the sun. Uh, it's not going to peel off on your car uh, after two weeks uh, like some of my stickers do. Uh, they're going to last forever. But we just wanted to give a quick shout out to that business. Yeah, they make great stickers. I have one of a mountain pine beetle. Love it. Great art, great stickers. Perfect. Perfect. So thank you, Rocky Mountain Sticker Company. If you would like to order some of their stuff, please Google their business name and tell them that we sent you. Well, Spencer, if if they want a sticker of the Megatherium Club podcast, can they also just reach out to us on one of our platforms and get that as well? Yeah, sure. We have a few already available if you would like. We have two different styles. We don't have too many in stock right now, so if you want one, they're going to go fast. Uh, Just let us know, and we'll send you a sticker. They're flying off the shelves, guys. Flying (laughs) off the shelves. We don't know how much these are. I don't know. Pay whatever you think is fair if you're going to buy it. Uh, (laughs) So great stuff. Yeah, why why don't we dive into the episode? Awesome. Which uh, who wants to go first? I'm excited to hear about Zach's tree. Yeah, yeah, he seems pretty passionate about this. I, I want to, I want to learn about it. All right. Well, I, I could go first. I have a, I've kind of designed a story that is a little disorganized, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I say jump into it head first. All right, I am gonna jump into it head first. Okay. <laughs> um, where's the head though? Okay. <laughs> I want you guys to let your imagination take you back just before the start of World War II in the year 1941, the paleobotanist. Oh, shoot. Okay. So, uh, asterisk on this, guys. Uh, This tree is, uh, it was discovered in China by Chinese foresters, botanists, and scientists. So, there's a lot of Chinese names that I am not going to be able to pronounce. I am going to butcher them, and I apologize to all of them and all of you for making you listen to me say them. But anyways, take your imagination back to the year 1941. The paleobotanist Shigeru Miki uh, was looking through old Cretaceous fossils of of trees from the family Cupressaceae. That's the, uh, the cypress family, so imagine... Um, Redwoods, sequoias, and uh, bog cypress that you might see down south. Uh, those are all good examples of the family Cupressaceae, if you can, if you guys know what those are. And so he's looking through these fossils, and he he notices one that is that was uh, previously identified as something else, but then he notices that it's it's got a different leaf pattern than what it was originally described as. And he comes up with the genus Metasequoia, meaning like a sequoia, because the leaves, they resemble a sequoia, but they're not exactly a sequoia. And so, yeah, just keep that in the back of your mind. This guy's going through all these fossils in China, and he's he just finds one, and he's like, this is something new, Metasequoia. This is cool. 
Yeah, and it's a, it's a cool discovery. They, they discovered a whole new genus of fossil trees. And then in the same the winter of the same year that uh, Shigeru Miki made this discovery, there was a different Chinese botanist by the name of Tolgan who found a grove of these giant trees in southeast China in the Sichuan province. And he's just like walking out here. I think he, he was it's said that he was just driving down the road and in the middle of these rice paddies, he saw these just enormous trees. So he gets out and he's like, what are these? And he starts asking around at, to all the locals, all the, the farmers probably, like, what are these? And he, all the locals tell them, oh, they're water firs. And uh, one really cool thing about this tree that I'm going to tell you what it is, um, is that it is, okay, this is the Don Redwood. Okay, cut that. This was, that was bad presentation. <laughs> <laughs> No, okay. no, no, no. You get another chance. Say it, say it epically this time. Well, that, it just wasn't the right spot for it. Oh, oh okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's got to have a more dramatic entrance. The Dawn <laughs> Redwood. <laughs> okay, but anyways, Tolgan has no idea what these trees are. The locals tell, them, tell him that they're called water firs. And one really cool thing about this tree that I'm describing is that it is it is a conifer cupressaceae is a coniferous family but one really cool thing about it is that it is a deciduous conifer oh but what, what does that mean so there are two different types of trees right there are your evergreens like your pines spruces douglas fir true fir a uh, few others and then uh, there are your deciduous trees. Those are the ones that uh, they turn colors and they drop their leaves in the fall. And to have a deciduous conifer is just really cool because there's not many of them that exist. And one question I have for you guys, Spencer, do you guys know of any <laughs> other <laughs> deciduous conifers? Wait, are you yeah, are the... you asking because I know the answer? I Well, you, I want to know if, if you know. And Spencer, I want to know your answer. Okay, okay. I'll wait. I'll wait for Sean. Yeah, the, Sean, the, you answer first. Do you know any other deciduous conifers? Ginkgos. Ginkgos are not coniferous. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I don't know then. Ah, okay. Let me step into the Wait, wait, wait. Actually, yeah, they're hang not, on. They're not I, they're not flowering plants. So what right, are they? But I they're don't not think coniferous. They're but what are they though? We we as the Megatherium Club, we need to figure that out because they're not flowering plants. Are ginkgos? Let's. They're gymnosperms, but oh, that's that's the weird thing about them. Yeah, yeah, that's the weird thing about them. Yeah, they are they are living fossils, so we can save that for. (laughs) They are also a Lazarus taxon, though, too. Okay, oh, I just I Googled it, and according to UCR Botanic Gardens, um, the ginkgo is a gymnosperm closely related to cycads and conifers. So, yeah, very ancient. Cycads, another living fossil. That's that's a whole other story. Those are cool, too. But they're not cycads, and they're not conifers. They are their own thing, it sounds like. Okay, well, th- this website from UMN says ginkgo is a deciduous conifer hmm so university, university of minnesota i mean you know only weirdos go there but 
That's true. That, uh, that's what this is, says. That's what this says. If, okay, well, at least if if anything, let's say ginkgos are very close, if not, you know, a conifer. Very close, if not a conifer. And they are deciduous. So they're a gymnosperm, which, Zach, do you want to explain what a gymnosperm is? Yeah, maybe, so maybe, yeah. millions of years ago, um, the trees were all gymnosperms, right? That mean gymnosperm, it translates to naked seed. And that's kind of what it is. Like the seeds are just out there on the branches. And it wasn't until the evolution of flowering plants, which is what is the plant world is dominated by today, is flowering plants, angiosperms, that they, have, they actually have flowers and they have fruits, and that's what holds the seeds. So that's, that's kind of the difference there. Well, what, what does a seed look like then on a gymnosperm? Are you talking like a pine cone? Um, that, is, that is an example of gymnosperm... Uh, seeds is is a pine cone each each um scale is what they're called on a pine cone that's there's a seed at the end of that scale and it's naked and it's naked fully fully exposed to the world naked nice huh well yeah interesting i i saw a few websites that are like they're closely related to conifers oh actually okay this I just looked up the University of California Museum of Paleontology, and it seems like the vascular system is what's different. Mm. So, oh. um, ginkgos have I'm I'm thinking they have xylem and phloem, um, but they don't have they don't have tracheids is what they don't have is what I'm thinking. Okay, so they're they're closely related. My my answer was like ninety percent correct. Yeah, yes. you're yeah, you're so you were close enough, but like I'm only we're gonna give you that ten close but no dumb. cigar. Close okay. but no cigar. Yeah, yeah. yeah well I'll give a, a hundred percent correct answer here. <laughs> the eastern larch, uh, which is the well, was one of the most abundant trees in North America at one time. There's what eastern larch, western larch, also known as the tamaracks. Yes. Multiple species found throughout the world, but mostly in the northern well, in the northern hemisphere within usually the boreal forests or the Rocky Mountains. They are a, uh, a true deciduous conifer from all sources. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not, not yeah. just the University the, of Minnesota. Yeah, not they just are, the are coniferous, meaning cone-bearing trees that are also deciduous. And if you guys ever have the opportunity, one, I guess, to see one in real life, or if you have to, if you're like from south of the boreal forest, basically which is most of North America, most of the world. Um, yeah, Google it. They're absolutely beautiful. They turn this bright yellow color, and I don't know. You, there's nothing else like it, honestly. Uh, are, are we talking about larches or your tree? Uh, we're talking larches. about larches. Oh, okay, okay. Large, large slash tamarack. Turn gotcha. a beautiful yellow color. All the needles are yellow. It's, it's amazing. Seeing a whole landscape of them is absolutely breathtaking. The reason I know that is that... That was the tree that I studied um, in grad school, or at least the insect pest that affected that ah. tree. Um, so yeah. yeah. Oh, Spencer. Uh, also, I saw Erica Eidson today or this week. Oh, I didn't really talk to her at all because I don't think she remembers who I am. But I saw her. Yeah. 
Well, um, we'll do a shout out to her, even though she won't listen to this. <laughs> yeah. You have no idea who I am. Hi. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Cool. Well, I d I've already learned something today. I knew that ginkgos were angiosperms, but I didn't think they were that closely related to conifers. Cool. They also come from a small area in China. So they have a similar background. Oh, oh that yeah. makes sense. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, back to our story. As you may remember, I said that Tolgan, the guy who found these huge trees in Sichuan, China, uh, he found them in winter, and they didn't have any needles because they are deciduous conifers. And um, <laughs> so he's all looking at these like, these are huge. What are they? Water furs. Okay, I'm going to leave. He, he didn't take any samples, anything. He just... He left with this story about these huge trees without any any leaves on them. Um, so no specimens were collected. And at this point, China is in the middle of war. This is this is the middle of World War Two. Well, beginning of World War Two. So like there's fighting going on all over the place and nobody goes back to this stand of trees for several years. And when somebody does finally go back, they, I guess they heard stories about these giant trees in southeastern China. So they go and they're like, we're going to go collect some samples. And they go and find about a thousand of these trees, of these water firs. And they take samples and they identify them as Glyptostrobus penicillus or pencilis, the Chinese swamp cypress. And it wasn't until, so they brought these uh, samples back and it's not until they passed through many hands of botanists and, and just foresters and other scientists that somebody um, by the name of, I'm going to butcher this name, Hu Xian Shu. Beautiful. Hu uh, Xian Shu. You're getting worse. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's like, okay, this isn't Chinese water cypress. That's not what this is. And he actually makes the connection because I guess he had seen uh, Shigeru Miki's meta sequoia samples or fossils. And he put the two together like, wait a second. This right here is the exact same thing in this fossil. So, and it should be noted that these fossil specimens, uh, like this, this tree species was thought to have gone extinct over 5 million years ago. And it, there's fossils found from all over the Northern Hemisphere, from like North America uh, all the way into like Asia, and this, there's a, they're abundant. There's a ton of these fossils. And there's actually some petrified forests of Meta Sequoia, I think, in the United States. I need to Google that to actually double check. Um, but so, but the, these Chinese scientists, they made this discovery that this tree is no longer extinct. It has been around in this small area of China for over 5 million years going completely undetected nobody nobody knew what it was and they ended up naming it metasequoia glyptostroboides the dawn redwood and when, when you say no one knew what it was are we are we saying no one on earth or just not modern western science because wouldn't some chinese like 
obviously they may I, not have known it yeah. was obviously uh, the locals like the locals like knew like oh yeah there's this water fur over here but mm-hmm. they didn't they had i don't think anybody had any clue that it was this old like the species was this oh, old yeah. gotcha gotcha yeah so the don redwood and they name it metasequoia glyptostraboides as uh, an homage to the chinese water cypress uh, glyptostrobus and metasequoia meaning like a sequoia and if you go into the taxonomy of this the they're very they're in the like I said earlier, the family Cupressaceae, and then subfamily Sequoidea. So within that subfamily, we have giant sequoias, we have West Coast uh, redwoods, and now we have Metasequoia, the Metasequoia genus. So there's three genera, each of which only have a single species in them, including this Metasequoia. I should say one living species. And then, okay, so that's not even the end of the story. Like oh. they, they, they discover it. They're like, oh, my God, this is so cool. This tree is over 5 million years old, or, I mean, was thought to be extinct 5 million years ago. It's much, much older than that. Um, do I have in my notes how old it actually was? <laughs> no. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> okay. So to continue the story... Uh, a year after this discovery was made, this it kind of like set the world on fire here, at least like the forestry botanical world. Hopefully not the trees. <laughs> yeah, de- ho- yeah, definitely, hopefully not the trees. <laughs> but one year after this discovery, Harvard University threw up, get this. They threw two- up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They threw up. They were like, <laughs> they were so excited. They <laughs> just vomited all over the place. <laughs> Jesus. I get that. No, they they threw up. Two hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> for an expedition to this grove. Now, given this is 1947, so two hundred and fifty dollars went a little further then, but it still doesn't feel like that much. Um, I don't actually have a calculation for how much that would have been in 1947 dollars, but I'm pretty sure it's safe to say it's like maybe a plane ticket to China. Um, but they threw up $250 for an ex to send an expedition to this grove of trees and collect seeds so they can plant it in their arboretum. And so that, and then China starts, uh, planting seeds for different growth trials because there's only this one grove of these trees is known in the entire world. And so they start growing this tree at an arboretum and then start kind of experimenting with different. I mean, growth trials, I guess. But today, the Don Redwood Don Redwood is actually a really popular street and ornamental tree that is planted worldwide. Um, so it's like kind of exploded. And you can find it in streets from New York to... Uh, I forget all the other places that they are. But they're all over the place. There's a lot in the Northwest. And um, I remember... in I don't have this in my notes right now, but... I remember China having like a a roadway or something, or it was called the alley, I think, of sixty kilometers of these trees. So they're they're planting them pretty widespread, but uh, the tree status in the wild is a little less optimistic. 
there were some surveys done in the 2000s where they measured basically every known Don Redwood that they could find, which included around 5,300-ish. And oh, according to Wikipedia, 5,371. Um, with one stand having over 5,000 of those trees, and then there's like scattered other you know, groves or stands of these trees with like 30 trees or fewer, <laughs> which is like nothing. So there's basically like one real area where these trees are in the entire world. And it's, a, it's impressive like those those small little islands, I guess, could survive that like genetic bottlenecking. Right. Well, actually, they are having some issues with uh, oh, well. genetic diversity now because I think they I don't think they took enough trees, mm, yeah. <laughs> enough enough of a, a seed sample to really um, have the best genetics. Mm. Uh, but they seem to be doing fine. Uh, but some of these uh, so they they start measuring all these trees and they're finding they're also finding stumps of these trees in like old stands and they're finding diameters of these trees. I don't know if you guys know what a DBH is diameter at breast height. Um, it's basically at the, the height of your breast. Yeah. Well, not necessarily yours. (laughs) (laughs) It's not necessarily yours. I think it's based off of the breast of a six, two man or something like that. Like something very arbitrary. He would have uh, a higher yeah. breast than me. Yeah, so like breast height on me is like almost my chin. <laughs> but anyways, they were finding so let me let me preface this with most trees that I measure recently are about like 10 to 15 inches in diameter. That's inches. The biggest trees well, some of the biggest trees that I've measured in Colorado, I think the biggest one was a Doug fir that was like maybe 40 inches maybe they were measuring trees that were two to eight meters in diameter that's 26.2 feet in diameter and then whatever yeah yeah a little bit bigger (laughs) which is absolute and okay so the biggest trees that i have ever measured were douglas fir in olympic national park in the northwest and those were to give you scale, like this w- is, to my knowledge, the biggest stand of Douglas fir in the entire state of Washington. They were eight feet in diameter. Hmm. How, how does this that compare 26. to like General Sherman and the like the, the like the mammoth, not the mammoth, the the sequoia trees over in California? Um, I mean, it probably doesn't compare too much to general sherman um because that's like one of the biggest modern trees yeah. known to man right now um i can quick google the diameter so, okay <laughs> okay so general sherman diameter is uh 11 meters 36 feet and wow. he is 275 feet tall hmm. which so. One thing to note about big trees is that it's generally accepted that giant sequoias are the largest by volume, but um, west the West Coast redwood is the largest in height. Like they're taller than uh, giant sequoias, but not as like girthy. Yeah. 
but there's also some like i don't know if they're confirmed or not records of uh douglas fir actually maybe possibly being a little bit taller than redwoods hmm. anyways that's that's uh the story of the dawn redwood do i have anything else in my notes oh yeah I have one more thing. <laughs> um, in these stands that they were measuring the the Don Redwood in China, uh, like picture a cypress swamp if you can in the southern U.S. Just like a bog with like these crazy buttressed trees coming out of it, but then on steroids. These trees are massive. Uh, I guess they don't necessarily compare to uh, General Sherman's diameter, but maybe they maybe they could be taller. I'm not sure. But in all of these stands that they were surveying for Don Redwood, they didn't find a single seedling, not one. And huh. there's some thought that um, the demand for Don Redwood seedlings being planted all over the world is so high that people are illegally collecting them mm. so, and, then, and then selling them. But either way, like they didn't find any, so... Today, where these mature uh, Don Redwoods are found, those are probably the last ones, which is kind of kind of tragic. It's does that include it's like tragic. all the streets in New York and every other place that you alluded to? Okay, you know, let me put the asterisks on that. That it, they are the last wild ones. Anything um. after that, after these ones die. Uh, the, the entire species will only exist in your yard or on your street. Gotcha. So they're That's too bad. Yeah, it's kind of like we we discovered it a little too late, but and it's really it's really cool that it's been here for this entire time, like right under our noses. But it's it's also sad that the habitat is going away and being converted into rice paddies. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also the glimmer of hope. In your backyard. It, so, it, they can survive through millions of years in dinosaurs, but not humans. But not but not us. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the general trend. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's the general trend of a lot of things, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's an untold number of species that go extinct before we ever even realize they existed. Oh, I did look up the $250 in 1947, and it was... Three thousand four hundred fifty dollars and fifty-five cents today. So, God, still not a lot, real. but no, that's more than a plane ticket, though. That's like three plane tickets. Yeah, yeah. No food, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're you're in the cargo bay, maybe. Yeah, but anyways, I wanted to end it on that bittersweet note of you no. Know, while they may not survive in the wild. The, there is a, a glimmer of hope in your backyard. So you said, though, the ones that are all in our backyards and along the streets have bad genetics. What, what do you, like, why are they weaker? Are they more prone to certain insects? Do they just have, are they just weak against wind? Why, why are they weak? Do you know? I have no idea, honestly. honestly actually, it kind of, from what I'm reading, it seems like most of them are doing pretty well. Like, they're like already six feet in diameter, some of them. Uh, but there was maybe some like hiccups along the way in getting them to where they are today. Mm. And I can't imagine that any tree species is going to do better in an urban setting or even a suburban setting. Oh, you know what species does great? Uh, the That 
pear tree. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's all yeah, of course there are those but it smells like genitals. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> I don't think I actually know what you're talking about anymore. Um, they, that, that completely threw me off. The ornamental pear tree that everybody started growing across the US um but then people were like oh this is actually pretty bad because it's really weak uh mm-hmm. oh, is it called oh the, the calorie pear yeah calorie pear yeah i, I know That's in the mid i know in the in the west in the midwest it's all over the place if you're like driving on a highway and you see like an off-ramp or something where like land was you know kind of pushed to the side to make way for all these highways and stuff well it's just overgrown with calorie pears and they're like you know they look pretty they're covered in white flowers in the spring but they're really brittle and just break but and they they proliferate like crazy and but they smell so bad (laughs) (laughs) were they were they introduced as like an ornamental tree yeah, and they're from sort of as the Don Redwood is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're from China then, and Vietnam. Uh, they're in the family Rosaceae. Yeah. Oh, oh, some of them are known as the Bradford pear. Oh, okay. It's, I know the Bradford pear. It, it's yeah. a cult. That's the a cultivar of the calorie pear tree. It's the same oh. thing. They all smell like booty. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I've ever smelled it, but yeah, very oh. good. I mean, I'm in the Midwest, so now I'm going to have to go oh, smell. It, I'm assuming they smell bad during the flowering season. Yes, yeah. yes, so bad. Oh, my, my undergrad thought it was a great idea to plant these around your uh, dorms. Um, oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, anyways. Well, one great thing about the Don Redwood is that even though it's introduced and ornamental in the United States, it is not, it's, it's not really prone to escaping like that. Okay, it's not, you know invasive even yeah. though even though it's non-native it's not invasive yeah I, I probably wouldn't have it as one of my favorite trees if uh, if it was invasive yeah that's fair although an invasive redwood sounds pretty cool i oh no we're just growing redwood forests. we have gigantic <laughs> trees all over the place now what are we gonna and only do like a hundred to 200 300 years will we have a problem (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that zach that's that's pretty cool and i can see why uh it inspired you to do this theme or suggest this theme well uh i can go next uh but i do want to preface this with i'll be honest guys i think i misinterpreted something i thought this episode was living fossils slash lazarus species so i'm actually gonna only talk about one today well the the don redwood is both so oh i think i think i know what what you're talking about yeah i i see what you're doing you you can do whatever you want you can talk about the other one you know what i'm gonna talk about the other one yeah it's this is living fossils this is Living Fossils episode with a focus on Lazarus species. So, all right. Like Zach, I wrote a little narrative story uh, that I'm going to read for you guys here. So, imagine you're a fisher person working in the nets in 1938 off the shore of South Africa. You're tired, but the next haul of fish needs to be brought in from the depths and sorted before the day is finished. You open the net and out flops an array of today's pay. You then catch a glimpse of something among the familiar, something with a green-blue iridescent hue. Your hands struggle to pull the five-foot-long five behemoth 
Is this thing armored, you think to yourself? Luckily, this fish has numerous fins to grab onto. Maybe too many fins. Remembering your orders to report strange specimens, you call for Captain Hendrik Goosen, who tells you to put aside the fish until they've returned to shore. Upon arrival, you hear the captain call biologist Marjorie Eileen Doris Courtney Latin Latimer, um, which I'll refer to as <laughs> Wait, can you, can you say that again? <laughs> that was Marjorie Wait, what's Eileen Doris. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Marjorie Eileen Doris Courtney Latimer. Say that five times fast. Five times fast. It's long. She's got a hyphen in there even. It's crazy. She rushes to the docks, and you watch her eyes widen at the sight of the catch. It's almost as if you can hear her thoughts. Is this something strange? Something new? Definitely. When Marjorie took the specimen away, she enlisted the help of ichthyologist... Um, someone who studies fishes, uh, James L.B. Smith. Zach, any relation? <laughs> That's my great-granddad. Perfect. Um, yep, from South Africa. <laughs> I And I imagine the conversation going something like this. I've gone away from that narrative a little bit. <laughs> James, I need your help. I have scoured all of my books and guides trying to identify this darn fish. I can't find it anywhere. I think it might be new. Well, Marjorie, it is certainly new, but also incredibly old. What the heck is that supposed to mean? Well, you have rediscovered the coelacanth, a fish that went extinct millions of years ago. No shadow of a doubt, it is one of those creatures of 200 million years ago come alive again. And yes, folks, you heard that correctly. A fish discovered alive that was once thought to have died out at least 66 million years ago, only known through the fossil record. So these fisher people, they, they were tasked to essentially, whenever they would haul something up, they would essentially invite this biologist to look at their catch. And she would just take away the cool things that she wanted for herself. And Marjorie saw this giant fish with so many fins and said that looks weird i'm taking it she took it back to the lab um at first she couldn't actually get a hold of uh of uh james smith and so she actually ended up bringing it to taxonomist who then preserved it for her but as soon as james smith walked into her office and looked upon this fish he said wow you have a coelacanth which like zach's i mean the, the lazarus species here uh, it had only ever been seen in the fossil record. And the last fossil record, the earliest one at that time, I think was at least 200 million years old with some like with, uh, I think, just shortly after specimens early as 80 million years old, but not alive. And yeah, crazy stuff. So since then, there are currently 90 described species of coelacanth with only two species that are found alive today. Uh, but however, every coelacanth falls under the order coelacanthiformes. Not all of them share the same genus and species name. Um, the genus uh, for the modern ones uh, is, why am I forgetting it? Off the top of my head, um, Lat Latimera. Latimeria? Latimeria, yes, thank you, Latimeria. So 
since 1938, I think there's been around 300 uh, of these fishes caught uh, on the coast of Africa and in the Indonesian area, uh, with the two species being in those distinctive areas. So the African coelacanth and then the Indonesian coelacanth. And I want to talk about what makes these special and what makes them living fossils. So coelacanths are, and at least the modern ones, because we've been able to observe their behavior in the wild. Um, you can find videos of them online on YouTube, but they are considered drift feeders. So they move slowly until basically a smaller animal, smaller fish, crustacean, something like that, swims past them, and then they suck it into their uh, open mouth. Is that when they like open their mouth really fast to create a vacuum and then they suck it up? I think a lot of fishes do that. Um, so I would, I would say yes, but they don't have a, a super large mouth, which is quite interesting. They may be big, huge fish, but they're not, they don't, their mouths are actually considered relatively small for their size. Uh, and there's a, there's how big a are we talking here? Oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you that. So modern ones, the ones that are extant today grow up to about six feet long. Woo! Going back through the fossil record, the smallest coelacanths were about a foot long. The largest coelacanths being about 16 feet <laughs> long. Jeez. Big fish. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, even the ones today are, are rather big, um, but they hunt at night um, they're not active during the day. And during the day, you'll find them uh, within the like the caves or rocky outcroppings deep within the water. Um, they are also not very uh, not a very much source species. You, you find them at depth, and from just like their anatomy, they have some pretty fascinating and defining characteristics. The first is that the coelacanth is the only fish that is alive today that has a jointed skull. No, Whoa. that I didn't say jointed jaw, a jointed skull. What does that mean? So looking back in the fossil record, this is actually a pretty common trait for ancient fish. And the notochord, which is a cord that connects the brain to the spinal cord, in baby fish was pretty well developed. And it essentially gave, gave room for the developing fish to essentially develop a, a nice nervous system. But as the fish got older, that notochord shrunk and the, the joints essentially fused together and it's basically just formed a tube for that notochord. However, it's op the opposite happens in coelacanths and that they're special for it. And that instead of that, uh, that tube shrinking, it actually grows to 50 times its original size. Whoa, why does it which, do that? So the idea I think is, uh, I don't, my guess, and I couldn't really find a whole lot of information on this, and I'm sure there's some out there, but when you look at a coelacanth's brain cavity within their skull, only 1% to 1.5% of the brain cavity actually contains brain matter. What? So their brain cavity doesn't contain a majority of their brain. <laughs> A majority of their brain is within this notochord that has grown 50 times the size from when it was a baby fish. <laughs> uh, the rest of the brain cavity is filled with fatty tissue. And uh, it, it, in addition to some kind of vestigial lungs or lung-type organs, essentially uh, act as like the fish's float bladder. It's quite an interesting evolutionary trait to kind of develop your own way to like move through the water column. 
but to sacrifice your brain cavity in order <laughs> to do that. So, but the fish aren't dumb. They 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 still have uh, lots of neural connections going on. It's just located in a different part of their body. Kind of so, like insects, right? Where they don't necessarily like have a brain. They just have like a bunch of concentrations of ganglia. Yeah, um, which is why you can cut the head off of an insect and it can still run around and <laughs> do its insecty things. Yeah, it only so, dies because it starves. Yeah. Pretty much, usually. Yeah, I mean, starves or desiccates or, or you know, dries out because um, it just is exposed to the elements at that point. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, but you know, when you look at a coelacanth, that's not what you're going to see. What you're going to see is you're going to see lots of fins. And that, again, is a pretty extraordinary trait of the coelacanth. Um, their caudal fin or their tail fin, instead of having one to two lobes like most fish have, they actually have three lobes. And I think they're one of the only fishes, I think there's only a few examples of fish that have three-lobed caudal fins. Uh, their dorsal fins, so the ones on their back, their pectoral fins, so like their arm fins, you know, where the arms would be, and their pelvic fins, or where their legs would be, uh, are all paired. So meaning that there's one on each side, including the dorsal fin, uh, which is pretty distinctive, uh, again, for the, um, uh, for the coelacanth, in addition to having an anal fin as well. So in total, with all of these, they have eight fins in total, which gives them a pretty mutant look, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of them, and yeah, they just have like this weird. So yeah, like the pectoral and uh, the back fins. What were those called? The dorsal yeah. fins. No, no, the pectoral, the arms, and the legs. What are the legs? The pectoral and the pelvic. The yeah, pelvic, pelvic fins. But then there's like this weird middle one. That's the that would be the anal fin. Yeah, that's the that's their extra one. So the caudal, they have a caudal, anal. And then uh, the three others, pectoral, pelvis, and um, dorsal fins. Weird. Huh. Yeah, trout uh, also have a unique fin. Zach, you you like to fish, don't you? Oh, yeah. I was I was fishing last night. Nice. Did you catch any trout? Yeah, no. I'm, tr- I'm learning learning to fly <laughs> fish. And, yep. yeah, I for some reason, I think I'm using old line or something because when I'm casting, I'm losing my fly. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's that's a really good way. To like I'm basically, I basically threw like four flies in the river last night. Perfect. Yeah, great. Uh, well, they have a little extra fin on their back behind their dorsal fin, and I, I I'm pulling a blank. I think it's called the adipose fin. Uh, I don't know. Something. I think it starts with an A. Maybe I got it right. Maybe I got it wrong. Doesn't matter. We're not yeah, talking about that. Yeah, it, it is the adipose. It is, adipose. It is yeah. the adipose fin. Great. Okay. Yeah, you're right. So anyway, yeah, but Zach. I'm, I'm assuming you have a picture up of a trout now. Can you can you tell oh, I, me the difference between? Oh, I, well, either way, I, can can you tell me the difference between how a fin looks like on a regular fish versus the coelacanth? <laughs> versus the coelacanth. Yeah, um, you said you had a picture of the coelacanth out. Let me let me repull that up. I, I got a picture of a trout now, and I gotta like, I gotta go back to my to my coelacanth. Okay, we got the trout, we got the coelacanth, and, okay, so I'm looking at the fins, and the fins on this trout right here, they look softer, if that makes sense. On, on the like trout? The, like, yeah, on the trout, they look softer, and on the coelacanth, 
They looked bony. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. So, yeah, when you're looking at like a trout uh, fin or any pretty much any fish that you can probably think of besides um, the coelacanth, it's just a fin. There's nothing extra. It's just like that ray with some webbing in between that helps move the fish along. But on the coelacanth, they have like scales and then the fin. And that's because within underneath those scales is actually bone. There are bones within that area. So essentially little arms and little legs with some fins at the end. And so think of their fins more closely related to what you might expect in like a whale, where you're going to have bones inside of those fins that support that support them. Now, this allows the coelacanth to actually not necessarily like swim like a fish would do, but to just kind of walk along as they're swimming. They essentially walk through the water. I was going to say it almost looks like an arm and, and then a and then a fin. And then a fin, and that's exactly what it is. Okay, yeah. question. I might be getting ahead of you on this, but mm-hmm. are they lobed fin fish? Yes, they are. So that yes, yes, yes. You you got ahead, but that's okay. I was that was the. I'm glad you were able to to describe that. So they are considered lobed fin fish. The other fish, uh, you know, your goldfish, the trout, those are ray fin fish. And then you have your cartilaginous fish, so the sharks well, um, and the rays. Spencer, it, what what else is a lobe-finned fish? Ah, so there's only so yes, both of you are just on the right track, and I'm so happy <laughs> for it. So there's only one other lobed fish that lives today, and that's called the lungfish. The lungfish is a semi-aquatic, semi-terrestrial fish that can essentially walk on land. Uh, find nice little moist mud puddles uh, and can breathe air for a time through a, a lung organ. So this is this actually brings me to kind of my next part in that in 2013, a long lasting debate finally was concluded. And the idea was they looked at coelacanths with their kind of, you know, arms and leg type things. And then they looked at lungfish and said, okay, both of these are considered what are transitional species. So the in-between from when fishes were just in the water and then when fishes would ultimately crawl out and start to dominate the land and would evolve and branch into every land animal, well, every vertebrate land animal that we can think of today. And the idea was, okay, both the lungfish and both the coelacanth Uh, are incredibly old, up to 400 million years old. So which is more closely related to us? So this study, they took the genome uh, of both these things, uh, specifically looked at, because the genome for the lungfish has been done, and they took the genome for the coelacanth, and they decoded it. And what they found was... Wait, wait, wait. Drum roll, drum roll. uh, Okay. The lungfish won out. Oh, we're lungfish. The lungfish are technically more closely related to tetrapods. So tetrapods are amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. So things with a backbone that, you know, when we think of an animal besides insects. So they're more closely related to us. However, 
lobed fin fish, so both the lungfish and the coelacanth, are still technically more closely related to us, like us as tetrapods, um, not humans specifically, but us as tetrapods, than they are to ray-finned and cartilaginous fishes. So um, weird. Which is, well, so in a, so, in a sense, we are lobe-finned fish. <laughs> yes, uh, your inner fish. In a sense, yeah. Um, we share a common ancestor with lobe-finned <laughs> fish. Yeah, for sure. It's um, crazy, though, that the coelacanth is more related to us than it is to this trout that I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Like We yeah. have so, more genetics in common with a coelacanth. Yeah, so... Uh, it is quite interesting and I want to kind of one disp- uh, dispel um, something about transitional species uh, is that transitional species like uh, like the Archaeopteryx and the uh, the coelacanth those individual species like the, the coelacanth that you can find today they didn't become us like the Archaeopteryx didn't evolve then into birds. Archaeopteryx was a dinosaur that shows evolutionary traits that eventually would become common in birds. And I think too many people think of transitional species as it was this and then this and then this, and this is how it was, rather than these are branches that showed characteristics that would later become us that eventually died out. Now, of course, there are species that would become us, right? Because we have to come from something. But that's uh, that's kind of a common argument, I think, for people who are against evolution. Yeah, that kind of goes along with the argument that people evolved from, like, chimpanzees oh, turned you into beat people. Me. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> yes, exactly. I got you. So that's where that's where I was getting. So I appreciate you you calling it out. Like, why do chimpanzees still exist if we came from them? Type deal. Right. Yeah, because we did not come from them. We just share a common ancestor. Yes, and that's that's the key word, common ancestor in that. So, yeah, back to the coelacanth. They are closely related to us. They're great. However, so the two different species that are alive today, I think it's the African one that is considered technically vulnerable and the Indonesian one that's considered critically endangered. But either way, like these these fish are kind of probably on their way out unless if conservation methods really get underway to protect these things it's going to be really hard to save them and just because a lot of things that live in the ocean and the ocean is very much susceptible to climate change and human inter like human disturbance through habitat destruction and pollution and overfishing that these are that these are you know at risk and one being critically endangered now coelacanths are not good eating they do not taste good. They're very bony. They're very oily. And in some cases, like they have, uh, well, their scales produce a mucus, which is really gross to deal with. But they can also just make people straight up sick. So people don't fish specifically for these, but they are at risk of becoming what's called or referred to as bycatch, where you're fishing for something else like oil fish and you catch a coelacanth. And the best conservation methods that we have today are essentially like when a fisher fishing boat catches a coelacanth, they put it back down into the water. But you have to be very careful because they live at such such deep depths that you can't just push them back down. You have to use special equipment to get them back down there. Um, so, How deep do they go? How deep do they live? Oh, God, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I can't remember. I didn't write it down in my notes. 
it's it's pretty deep but uh, you can you can snorkel down or not snorkel you can scuba dive down to them so around 200 i think 150 to 200 feet that's a pretty which isn't deep they're dive. not intertidal right they're not swimming in the shallows but they are pretty deep down in there yeah it's a pelagic um, species yeah so uh yeah pelagic that, meaning the, ocean ocean yeah it, it, is that pretty much why they weren't being discovered I guess by modern Ooh, science yes. until then, because we, we yeah. didn't have those capabilities of fishing that deep yet. So actually, no, these species. So like Zach, like Zach's is that people have known about these fish for a, a while. The, the tribal people have been catching these fish, right? But Western science wasn't there to come out of the woodworks and say, Hey, this is the same thing that we've seen in the fossil record that we haven't seen for 66 million years. And it, was, it wasn't until colonization that we were able to kind of rediscover this as a Western society. But the people who have been fishing those stuff, they've known about them. They just didn't want them. Like, you know, so there, there was, there's not a trade for them. There's not a market for them. So they weren't known to the rest of the world because why sell trash or fish. deal with a fish that's kind of slimy and gross when you have all this other stuff that you, is more important? Gotcha. Okay. So... Uh, and that's that's strongly uh, accepted as what has been going on uh, for quite some time. So again, like it w- like when we say rediscovered after sixty six million years, we have to remember that rediscovered by usually Western science yeah. or Western science ideals. It's, it's a very so, yeah. skewed perspective that we're looking at this. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So. Yeah, the, the coelacanth. Uh, again, a species you can find in Ark Survival Evolved. Uh, <laughs> the coal. Which is, no, I, I think, where a lot of people know them from. Yeah, so. <laughs> I think we should clarify, though, that most people pronounce it coal as short for C-O-E-L in the game, but they're wrong. If they really want to say it correctly, it'd be seal, but that's just... Mm. Or, or. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, coelacanth. Very good. Very cool. Thank you for that, Spencer. That was yeah, a beautiful I story. Think, I think you're up, Sean. What all do you right, got for all us? All right. Well, I'll, I'll start with my first one. Um, wasn't exactly a story mode for this one like you guys, but my first animal is a great example of uh, Lazarus taxon. Well, I think both of mine are, but the first one is Sudorca crassidens, also known more commonly as the false killer whale. And like actual killer whales, uh, these beautiful creatures are not actually whales. They are instead dolphins and found throughout the world's oceans. False killer whales grow up to 20 feet long and can weigh over 5,000 pounds. So they aren't exactly small, but they aren't nearly as big as killer whales, which get up to 26 feet long and can weigh over 12,000 pounds. And I didn't realize just how large orcas were... um, until this they're the, freaking huge some thick dolphins uh, uh, have, uh sorry i hate to interrupt again but um what is uh what is one what is the moose's or what is one of the moose's uh top predators orca oh, it, is it an orca it's an orca oh okay is it pseudorca <laughs> it is not a pseudorca <laughs> 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 Uh, no, yeah, uh, moose that live in the Pacific Northwest will actually swim down to deep depths to essentially eat and graze upon aquatic vegetation. And they're really strong swimmers. However, orcas are better. Shocking. <laughs> and if they see uh, a moose, <laughs> yeah, shocking. <laughs> if they see a moose, uh, 
there's actually been known cases of orcas attacking moose and eating moose. There's been cases of orcas attacking just about everything that you could think of that would be in an ocean. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm sure both of you have heard about this, but accounts of uh, orcas attacking and killing great white sharks. Oh, that's like common <laughs> knowledge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, ha- that... you, have you heard about them sinking ships? Oh, yeah, yes. they started doing that in like, Europe, didn't they? Yeah, it's like one pod that keeps inheriting this knowledge. So, like, they don't quite know why it's happening other than, like, maybe, it, like, a female felt threatened or competition with food or maybe, you know, maybe a boat injured it or something and it, it's, like, seeking revenge. And, you know, I'm, I'm personifying this, but these creatures are that smart. And, and to me, they, like, I joke about this, but it's i'm serious like they are the most terrifying animal to me i don't put me in the ocean with an orca never oh god no yeah i i did a whale watching tour one time on orcas island off the coast of washington and we got to see some orcas like jumping out of the water and let me tell you like there is no picture there is no video there is nothing there is no substitute for seeing them in person to just try to imagine how massive these mm. are and they're not even the biggest whales like well they're, they're not, not whales close. oh oh so this is new to me they're, they're dolphins oh okay i, I, I just said that <laughs> <laughs> so Wait, they're, they're all they're talking about pseudorcas. No, they're no. So pseudorcas and orcas are are not whales. They're dolphins. Oh, okay. There's there's cetaceans, which includes all whales, but orcas are the largest dolphin, um, and I guess the fourth largest dolphin is the false killer whale. With the long-finned pilot whale as number two, also not a whale, a dolphin, and the short-finned <laughs> pilot whale as number three, also not a whale, still a dolphin. Okay, so what makes a whale a dolphin and a whale a whale? Oh, that's a good question that I'm going to have to look it up real quick, because uh, everybody wants to say killer whale is a whale, but um, they aren't. What are the differences between whales and dolphins? Good question. The biggest difference is size. With all species of porpoise being that much smaller than their dolphin cousin, and porpoises having the pronounced beak, okay, but that's that's a porpoise. Um, this, this I feel beak. like we need to interview a whale, a cetaceanologist. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we can just simply say genetics. <laughs> the genetics. <laughs> yes, the cop-out answer. Yes. Um, okay, well, whales and dolphins have different body shapes. While dolphins are leaner with longer beaks and whales are bulkier. Additionally, all dolphins have relatively pronounced dorsal fins, while most whale species have smaller, no dorsal fins. Whales are far larger. Um, uh, and then habitat. Whales can be found worldwide in all oceans, regardless of temperature. Uh, dolphins prefer to live in open oceans and warm temperature waters. That probably doesn't... Uh, uh, Orcas might be an exception to that. Um, dolphins are opportunistic feeders. Um, while whales feed on larger prey or plankton and krill. Um, 
Or a giant squid if you're really Or a cool. giant, yeah. Ah. A two-so-toothus. Two-so-toothus, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> well, yeah. I, really I, I guess that kind of explains it. Body shape and size. So I think that's the easiest answer there. Uh, dolphins. What I found, I just did like a Google of it. And I found that way, uh, killer whales, orcas, are a member of the toothed whale family. Or the tooth, the tooth whale suborder, mm. and then also, at the same time, the largest member of Delphinidae, the dolphin family. Gotcha. So they're so a I wonder. So I, dolphins are like a a family of cetaceans. Yes. Uh, okay. That's 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 the 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 interpretation I'm getting. Gotcha. Off of one very fast. Uh, Google, Google search. search. Okay. Okay. So I, w- I wonder how the sperm whale is related to that then. They don't have the, the baleen-like teeth. Yeah. So what I'm seeing that. is that the sperm whale actually, I don't, it doesn't say what family or like order it's in, but it looks like it branched off of the baleen whales pretty early on. Yeah, it, they're they're very much uh, old old species for sure. Yeah. So, okay, interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, all right. Well, back to you, Sean. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, unlike the obvious black and white markings found on an orca, uh, false killer whales are nearly all black or gray with slightly lighter undersides. And like cetaceans, it has that long, slender body to help it propel through the water like a torpedo. The, the dorsal fin is not as large as orcas, um, uh, but it is sickle-shaped, which is kind of unique. And like other cetaceans as well, they are predators with 44 sharp teeth to eat a variety of fish and squids. But I found they do like swordfish, and I, I thought that was a little interesting fact. Uh, they must be pretty fast to catch those things. Something they also share in common with orcas is that they have been recorded feeding on other marine mammals like dolphins and even some whales with uh, recorded instances of them attacking humpbacks and sperm whales. I think it is impressive for any... You don't mess with a sperm whale. No, yeah, I was going to say, I think it's impressive for any creature smaller than those giant whales to attack them. But these things are like half the size of orcas and still bold enough to attempt that feat. Um... My guess is it was probably after a calf. That tends to be what they go for. Um, but it wasn't there. And they still got to get through the mom. And they are not small. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I assume since they are so much smaller, they're just you know fish eaters. But wow. I'm looking at a, a picture of one right now mm-hmm. next to a, a dolphin. I don't, I don't know dolphin species. But it doesn't look a whole lot bigger than just a regular dolphin. No, no, they aren't. Which, uh, if funny enough, uh, I know I just mentioned that they eat smaller dolphins and whales, but they are also known for acting non-aggressively with a handful of other dolphins, such as the bottlenose, Pacific white-sided, rough-toothed pilot, the melon-headed, the pantropical spotted, the pygmy killer whale, which is... Uh, I also didn't, didn't know that was a thing. Apparently, there's another what killer whale. <laughs> I'm guessing I'm it's a Googling much smaller. That. Yeah. And, and the Rizzo's dolphin, um, as well as other orcas. So Did you can, say Lizzo's dolphin? <laughs> yeah, Lizzo has a dolphin. Uh, just, just <laughs> don't one. need no man. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, they interact with all these things in non-aggressive ways. And I'm not sure, I couldn't find what smaller dolphin species they actually do feed on. Um, but in addition to <laughs> making friends with these dolphins, they, they tend to take it one step further. And f- fall, false killer whales are so friendly with bottlenose dolphins that they'll actually mate with them and produce what is called a wolfin. And they are fertile. What? They're fertile. Oh. And what? I know I know we were talking about what's a species last time, and sometimes uh, you know two species will mate and create something that is infertile. But wolfins are fertile, so thought that was pretty interesting. Wait, wait, wait. What? Okay. So false killer whales are the genus Pseudorca, right? Yes. And they mate with bottlenose dolphins. Yeah, completely different genus, but we do have yeah, to remember. Yeah, that's not even like they're like super. They're it's not like they're so closely related that they're like almost the same species. No, this mm-hmm. is entirely different genera. Well, we should also remember like these are human terms. We have to you know give a name to everything. So it, it, it's really arbitrary to the animal kingdom. They don't care what genus they're in. They're like you know this goes in this. Might as well make it happen, but. So we may, who's to say? Maybe they're not more closely related. Obviously, I mean, it sounds like they are <laughs> yeah. extremely closely related. Yeah, and they also will interact sexually with pilot whales. And another thing to take it another step further, these sexual interactions are not exclusive to heterosexual. They will interact homosexually. Um, so Dude, dolphins are. <laughs> They're sluts. Yeah. Not going to lie. They're horny. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Dude, have you heard about like the dolphin experiments that used to go on in maybe the 60s? With the – I I remember the one story of like a woman trainer got so close to her dolphin that, you know, sometimes the dolphin would get too excited and would get distracted from training. So she would, you know, help it get past its excitement. (laughs) manually yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and then continue on and that is strange and uh, i'm sure the dolphin didn't take advantage of that uh, <laughs> yeah yeah the, they are interesting creatures they they like to get do the business if if you will um but yeah like uh we're discussing these these uh, false killer whales don't really have a preference they just they just wanted to get it on and I know some monogamous relationships do occur in the animal kingdom, but not with these guys. The, the males will mate with multiple females, which is called polygynous, by the way, and other dolphins. And you even know they're males of various species. They just, they just got it on. If it's got a hole, they're going in. <laughs> yeah. And, okay, so you heard a bit about the, the false killer whale, but why does it fit in this category Lazarus taxon? Um, so the first description of this false killer whale was by a British paleontologist, Richard Owen, in his 1846 book, A History of British Fossil Mammals and Birds. And this description was entirely based around this skull that was found in 1843 in England. And he compared it to several other species, such as the longfin pilot whale, belugas, and Rizzo's dolphin, and placed it in the genus Phocana, which other porpoises share this genus, by the way. And gave the specific name of Crassidens, which means thick-toothed, and you know he just felt that was appropriate. But the, later that same year, John Edward, a zoologist, 
you know, already wanted to correct him and put it in the genus of Orcinus, Orcinus, Orcinus with the orca. Um, but uh, and, and until 1861, uh, scientists thought this animal was extinct because that skull they found in 1843 was 126,000 years old. So the, the, the skull was from the Pleistocene, which we all know now what that was like, you know, pretty fitting you know almost like i planned to talk about that creature for a reason and that the the first time that modern science even knew about this creature um was you know 1843 and they assumed it just wasn't around anymore well in 1861 a, a carcass washed up on shore in denmark I can only imagine what a shock that would have been. But then three months later, an entire pod beached themselves. So obviously at this point, scientists are like, yeah, this thing is not <laughs> extinct anymore. Uh, <laughs> I, don't know how, I don't know how the first thing we found of this creature was 126,000 years old, but there's plenty out there. They're just dying, though, on our beaches. Um, <laughs> but at this point, people also couldn't help but... Uh, see the similarities between the false killer whale and orcas uh, when looking at their skulls and so a new genus was given which was the pseudorca and the, the false killer whale name you know it was it was placed in this genus ever since and you know false killer whales are not definitely are definitely not thought to be extinct today because we have a number of them in captivity around the world apparently they're more adaptable to captivity than other species and easy to train I'm not exactly a big fan of keeping such large, intelligent marine mammals in captivity, but there are some people that would think this is pretty cool. These animals are also friendly to humans, whether that be divers in the water. They, they've been known to offer them fish, and or they like to ride the wakes of boats. And while they're not extinct by any means, uh, that doesn't mean that they can't return to being extinct in the eyes of humans one day these dolphins are one species that go back where you came from (laughs) we don't want you here uh they're one species that some people in the world will drive to mass strandings before they kill the animal um i'm assuming for meat and various other desires not in the u.s but i know we've seen on the news uh different parts of the world where we'll have mass dolphin slaughters for because cultural reasons and stuff Um, wait what i don't know about this you don't know about this no well some parts of the world these this is this specific species uh is hunted in japan but there are parts of spencer if i am wrong here let me know like Denmark, there's parts of like northern europe that also still practices right like fit like i don't want to be incorrect but you know, Finland. I, th- I think Norway, like Norway. still whales, but I don't think they catch these guys. Well, the, I mean, maybe not these guys specifically, but uh, Japan does it to these. Um, but there's other countries in the world where that just they'll push mass pods of dolphins to the shore, where there's like the whole village there waiting with clubs, and they just. There is there. Uh, there is a town that does that, yeah. and it is in Europe, um, but I don't want to call out a specific country because yeah. I'm not quite sure. Okay, uh, it is a Northern European country, yeah. uh, as far as I'm concerned. So. It, I, I know it like makes the news every year at that time of the year. Like they're still doing it, 
and then yeah. people are like, let's stop. And then I don't you know. We, we well, wait it's also something year. they've been doing for like thousands of years. Like it's not, yeah, I mean, they're not like intentionally pushing them to extinction. Like the native Alaskan Inuit still whale, don't they? They're the only ones allowed to, but they're, they're, you know, they're capturing like single digits like this right. pat rather than thousands yeah trapping hundred i think the issue is is that it's not necessarily the tradition and the practice that's bad it's just that a lot of these creatures are already of concern mm-hmm. and like at what point do we suspend tradition in favor of protecting a species um yeah especially you know yeah i mean if you've ever seen the pictures of it they're they're killing uh, entire pods of these whales and you know the blood uh, the blood turns the ocean red yeah um it's it's not easy to look at you know but again like we have to respect tradition and i think that's why it's been kept around for so long but at what point do we say Let's pause this <laughs> until we figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, but so, um, it's it's the species is classified as near threatened uh, by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which controls the red list of threatened species. And near threatened means the species is vulnerable to endangerment in the near future, but does not qualify for vulnerable species status currently uh, species that fall into the near category require you know constant reevaluation to keep up on it you know so we don't miss something and if you're curious about the ranking system it is as follows uh well i guess these first two aren't really part of the ranking system but there's like not evaluated data deficient but then the category really starts off with uh um least concern near threatened vulnerable endangered critically endangered extinct in the wild and extinct so the false killer whales several steps away from reaching this that extinct level again at least in the eyes of humans uh but conservation efforts are necessary to you know keep it there and not further push it down that road and like we were saying it it, it you know, it was thought to be extinct in the eyes of Western science, but at, at the at the time we weren't exactly, you know, sailing around the world on boats. And I mean, some people were, uh, but uh, yeah, not, not like as Japan knew about them. Oh, <laughs> uh, not as, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, now we're all over the ocean quite frequently, large ships everywhere. It's probably not an uncommon sight as it once was, and. Mm-hmm. so that's that's definitely gotten better that's for sure yeah yeah but and i you know i think avoiding calling out an entire country it's not all of the japanese people mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. all of these northern European people that are doing it. it's it's select individuals oh i'm not i'm not trying to call out call them out as a country. oh no I'm I'm, like, I'm it just, sounds like they knew about it <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah you know i was i wasn't saying either of you were doing that i'm just uh uh making sure that anybody who listens yeah it doesn't get that doesn't get idea. offended too so, yeah yeah but yeah that's the false killer whale that's a cool one that's a good uh, one sean i, like I didn't that really one. know pretty much anything about that species so i had never heard of it cool before. Inf- information <laughs> for me nice wow 
Um, yeah, I had never heard of a false killer whale before, and I also didn't know that uh, orcas were in the dolphin family. Ah, yeah. Well. Also, I I did another quick Google search, and I found out that um, sperm whales are also tooth whales, but just like so, like the same order as right. orcas and dolphins, but just a different family. Okay, so they branch off pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Then. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. My dream is to own a sperm tooth whale someday. Um, I want it. Wait, wait, a sperm toothed, a sperm toothed whale. You want a whole whale? No, just the a whole whale would be really cool. I mean, if we're really dreaming hypotheticals here, do I want an entire sperm whale? Yeah. Yes, I do. Um, What do their teeth look like? Sperm. Sperm. Yeah. Uh, no, think just like big predator, tooth. like Le- Le- Leviathan. Big, sure, Le- Levi- yeah, Leviathan. Like a Leviathan. Leviathan. Oh, I'm yeah. looking at them right now. They're pretty cool. They they look like honestly, they look like claws. They do. They're yeah, cur- they're, they're curved like a claw yeah. would be. Yeah, so they can hold on to that big old yeah, calamari big old squid. giant squid. Yeah. That calamari, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Yum. Uh, very good. Awesome. Uh, Okay. You wanna do you wanna read your next creature even though I, I th- Yeah, I'll I, read my next one. Yeah. So as a reminder, this is not a Lazarus species. Um, this is just a living fossil. Um, sorry for the misinterpretation there, guys, but it doesn't matter. This is casual podcasting uh, coming at you. So Sean, I have a question to pose to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had a chance to go kayaking or wading in the intertidal zones of North Carolina yet? No, I haven't even been to the coast yet. Is there killer whales yeah, there? That's weird. Uh, well, there are dolphins for sure. Um, uh, so, okay, I figured you'd say no because I think I knew that. But when you do, I want you to keep an eye out for the species that I'm going to talk about. Okay. They'll be slowly walking around the sandy floors uh, as the tide comes in and comes out. And that animal, of course, is the horseshoe crab. Um, so again, not wow. a Lazarus species. We've known about these for uh, a long, long time. Are they um, more but... closely related to horses or crabs? Oh, that was my joke. Or shoes. <laughs> oh, oh, you guys. <laughs> my sentence here is, which uh, these guys are, are not a horse, a shoe, nor a crab. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> so, wow. You guys are just on top of your stuff, and I appreciate that. Um, We're just ahead of so, you on everything right now. Oh, that's that's good. That's good. So the latter, being a crab, might not be obvious to most people. Uh, they are not crabs. They're not really that closely related to crabs. So crabs, horseshoe crabs, insects, spiders, uh, lobsters, they are all arthropods. Which, if we look at it in a very general sense, or define it in a very general sense, an animal with an exoskeleton. However, horseshoe crabs are not decapods, which that falls, you know, lobsters, crabs, shrimp, crayfish, those are decapods. Instead, uh, horseshoe crabs break off within the subphylum Chelicerata, which also contains sea spiders and the arachnids. The arachnids being the true spiders, scorpions, mites, daddy long legs, sun scorpions, etc. So the, they're actually more closely related to uh, sea spiders and spiders than they are 
to say a, a fiddler crab. Wait, so that also means they're more closely related to insects than they are crabs. Yes, yes, technically, yeah. However, uh, very quickly, do they fall away from from the sea spider? Well, the the arachnids, and they're in a different order. Xiphosura, as I believe how you say it. The order itself um, has existed for 480 million years with members of the horseshoe crabs living uh, or family uh, members or species within the same families existing around for 250 million years. So the ones that are alive today, that kind of family has been around for 250 million years. So let's look at them from the top. They're covered in a hard shell known as a carapace with a distinctive tail-like structure coming out underneath the shell called a telson. It looks really sharp. What do we think it's used for then, Zach, since you pointed that out? Ah, uh, poking, poking things. Ooh, ooh, I think I know, though. Okay, Sean, do you want to give it away, or do you want me to to, to, to go for oh, it? Oh, I, I actually don't know if this is right, but I was just going to oh, guess. Oh, okay, well, yeah, I want to hear your guess. Is it for writing itself if it, you know, it gets on its back? <laughs> That's a Yes, that's exactly yeah. it. So yes, Zach, they do look super sharp. You're dumb, Zach. Um, God, dumb. I'm so uh, dumb. But their their one function in reality is literally just to flip it back over when it falls up or when it gets knocked upside down. That's Dude, it. I bet they the poke things with it. I I bet they do. Well, so if you if you've ever had the pleasure of picking one up, which you know when we we're talking about animals, these animals are not going to hurt you at all there's no way that they can hurt you if you do pick them up they will kind of swing their tail back and forth it is a defense like hey please let go of me but they can't do anything else their their body most of their body is covered in the shell and everything underneath is tucked up inside so they're not going to be able to reach out and grab you really Um, but they might be able to kind of slap with your tail and hope that you let go but really what it's for is flipping them upright. So good guess, Sean. Very Hell good. Yeah. God, you're so smart. Um, I, I wish know. I was, I, I wish I was you. <laughs> we all do. We all do. So uh, in my experience teaching entomology or just interacting with the general population as an entomologist, uh, people find that creatures that have more than two eyes are generally... Uh, disturbing creepy (laughs) think spiders right spiders have lots and lots of eyes um well the horseshoe crab has two apparent eyes they are compound eyes just like uh, a a lot of the insects are so they're made up of lots of little lenses that kind of form a mosaic picture however they have way more than just two eyes just alone on their kind of carapace they're going to have uh, around eight eyes, I believe, going Holy. down the side of the carapace. What? Okay, yeah, I'm looking there's... at pictures of them right now, and I don't, I, I don't see that many eyes. Yeah, you don't. So that's why I said apparent eyes, right? So you can see the two kind of eyes up on top. Those are the compound eyes. Towards the front, you might see two what look like almost two little dots or little slits, like where a nose might be. Do you see that, Zach? No, I don't. Not really. Okay. Well, those are the two forward-facing simple. Oh my eyes. god, those are but so going small. Going along this, they are very small. Are they like um, ocelli? Like just basically yeah. light versus That's dark exactly sensing right. organs? Yes, ocelli or simple eyes. They have more going along the side of that carapace, 
and they even have photoreceptive cells on their tails. Huh. What? Yeah. Is that why These they're so sharp? Can... Yes. Just kidding. That makes zero sense. <laughs> so I was I was trying to make a joke out of there, and I really couldn't. Uh, no. I could think fast enough. But but no. So no, they're not seeing what you and I might be able to see. Uh, through those simple eyes alongside of their body or the photoreceptor cells in their tail. But what those eyes are doing are picking up uh, basically light and dark, the presence of light or the absence of light, uh, and maybe can form general shapes based off of shadows. And all of that information gets interpreted plus what the compound eyes are taking in. So these guys actually are super good at having night vision. And that's mostly what these simple eyes kind of throughout their body are for. The ability to kind of walk around at night, do their thing, and just be able to see uh, as they kind of walk along the the, the tidal, um, the intertidal zone floor or whatever. Uh, but lots of eyes. Now, they only have two apparent ones, so they're not that scary looking. But they do have tons of eyes, which is amazing in my point. Yeah. So continuing kind of along at that point is if we flip them over, what you're going to find are lots of legs. Ooh. Now, I told you... What's that, Zach? Oh, they're leggy. They're leggy. Now, I told you both that they're pretty closely related to sea spiders and the arachnids, and where arachnids have eight legs. Uh, but all of these belong in the, in the Chalicerata subphylum, which means that they have the apparent chelicerates which are two like modified legs that basically scoop food into their mouth so they're very much shortened they don't do any function really they're usually pinchy right like little pincers yeah they can be in some things that they become pinchers like in scorpions the chelicerata are the big pinchers so they 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 still help bring that food in but they're much bigger on a scorpion than they would be on say uh, a jumping spider Yes. Uh, where they're not that pinchy. But they do have these chelicerata or chelicerates on horseshoe crabs to kind of help bring whatever they might find on the ocean floor, being any soft, soft animal and the occasional small fish if they can catch one. And then they have a, they have 10 apparent legs, which might make you think they're closely related to decapods because deca meaning 10, pod meaning legged, so 10 legged. Um, but they actually, they're not, they, they don't actually, they're not closely related to them just because of the number of legs that they have. And the back legs are really modified for kind of helping them really scoot along and almost swim in a way, while the other legs are definitely helped uh, or definitely used for kind of walking along um, the sandy floor. And the best way to tell a male from a female is pick it up, flip it over, and if the two front apparent legs look like little boxing gloves. Uh, and when I say boxing gloves, they really do look like a pair of yeah. boxing gloves. Those are going to be males. Um, and those essentially help the horseshoe crab grab onto females during the mating season. Females are generally also bigger than males uh, in, in adulthood, but that's not necessarily a good, reliable method of identifying down to sex. So look for those club-like uh, front legs yeah very cool uh, i think the coolest part of the horseshoe crab has to be their blood 
Now, Sean, if you ever go to the ocean and you do find some of these, I don't know how common they are in North Carolina. They were really common when I was living in Massachusetts. We'd see them every time we'd go kayaking. So I want to pose another question to you both. Why is blood red? Why is our blood red? Because the oxygen is binding to the hemoglobin and it turns it red instead of blue. Yes, exactly. Because it's Um, oxygenated. the oxygen carrying molecule within our red blood cells, Zach, you got it exactly right. The hemoglobin, which has iron in it. What color is rust? Orange. It's it's a rust, red, rusty you know, color. Reddish orange, right? Yeah. So when iron oxidizes, so in the presence of moisture and oxygen, it becomes a reddish color. And that's the same reason why our blood is red. Now, horseshoe crab blood, if you were to look at it, is blue in color. <gasps> So can you take a guess or a stab at what their metal is that is in their blood? Copper. It's not oxygen. It's, wait, what's it? <laughs> uh, there's, it's there, not oxygen? There, there's no oxygen in their blood. There's no oxygen. Oh, I see. Right, red and blue. Yes, no, that's a really good point, Zach. Uh, blood is always red. It just appears blue through our skin through refraction, the same reason that the sky is blue is the same reason that our blood in our veins look blue. It's all about a trick of the light, but it is still technically red under there. But Sean, you said it. Copper. Oh, really? Nice. So yeah, that's exactly right. So instead of having hemoglobin, uh, they have what's called hemocyanin. <laughs> I was going to say the same Hemocyanin, which the, the metal component of that being copper and when we uh when copper oxidizes it turns blue the most famous example of that being the statue of liberty um, it's kind of that greenish blue color so but even more importantly than that in term in terms of like human use for blood their blood is that horseshoe crab blood contains something called amoebocytes site meaning cell and within our blood we have lots of white blood cells in horseshoe crabs, they also have what are closely related to white blood cells or their versions of white blood cells that are essentially acting as their immune system. And they're called amoebocytes. And the reason they're called that is because they move like an amoeba. They're a little bit more independent uh, in terms of how they actually get around. So they're dubbed amoebocytes. What they do is that these cells, they travel throughout the body and they detect the presence of toxic bacteria. And they release enzymes to essentially cover the bacteria and stop it from doing anything. Not unlike our immune system, right? But these cells are really, really, really good at detecting the presence of toxic bacteria. So much better than anything in our immune system. And there's an old like kind of joke that horseshoe crabs just literally can't get sick. Uh, they're not going to be infected by anything because their immune system is so much better than ours. God, that sounds nice. It does sound nice. Now they would never would have had Zoom meetings, ever. They would have never. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, Zach. Very good. Now you got you you got to what I was going to talk about the COVID nineteen pandemic. How the heck does this relate to horseshoe crabs? So vaccines, fake news are fake news. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sean. They are uh, especially during the COVID pandemic when the world was trying to get out mass quantities of vaccines to people all around the world so we could go back to 
this old normal, right? And but you can't you you can't make lots of vaccines and not make sure that it isn't bacteria infested because as we know bacteria can infest pretty much anything. So how do you test for that? Well, actually, what you do is you go out into the ocean, you collect a bunch of horseshoe crabs, you literally bleed them, you pull their blood out, you extract those amoebocytes, and then you put those amoebocytes in the vaccines, and if there's a presence of bacteria, you can then see that. You can then pull that out and say, oh, this is a contaminated batch of the vaccine. It has, it has bacteria in it. We can't release it. Hmm. Wait, what does it look like? Like this, like I don't actually know what it looks like. I couldn't really find a picture. You can visually but they're tell not, that like it's, it's not something infected. visual. It's something that you you put the the amoeba sites in. There's a special process. Uh, I think it's called LAL, and you put you put the amoeba sites in there, and then you can test for those those enzymes. Like you put it through a machine that will test them. So it's not like a petri dish where you're like, oh, there's the bacteria. It's grown. Um, you're running it through a machine that will test for the enzymes that are being released that are coating the bacteria. Okay. Do you follow? Yeah. yeah. So you're not. It's not something visual that you can see with your eyes. So yeah, horseshoe crabs played a big role in how the world was able to effectively put out all these vaccines in a very short amount of time. Now, what does this mean for the horseshoe crab population? <laughs> so currently. Horseshoe crabs, I think there are four species that live around the world. One in North America that lives only along the East Coast. And then the other three live throughout uh, Asia. And they all have similar things. They're all horseshoe crabs, so you can kind of pull from them. But labs literally will go out, pharmaceutical companies will go out and grab wild, wild ones to bring them back, pull out their blood, and then release them back. Now, of course, animal rights groups have really looked into this. Specifically, I think NPR also did a really good segment about this. Literally looking looking at an NPR story about it right now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, I remember when this came out a few years ago. And they're like, like, is this practice actually like safe for the horseshoe crab? And is it like good? Like, can we actually (laughs) do this? And basically the findings were like pharmaceutical companies uh, probably not practicing the best policies where we don't actually know how bad it affects these crabs. So they're pulling about 30% of their blood, which is a lot of their blood, which, you know, they're like, oh, it doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't kill them. We release them after a couple of days. They can be out of the water for four days and we release them within three days. So they're fine. There's some arguments that they don't actually release them, that they're instead selling them to bait companies to use as bait, or that when you pull that much blood out of, say, a female, that she can now no longer reproduce, or at least for a little while. So the practices aren't necessarily there. Hmm. But luckily, we might not have to worry about this because some scientists, and I can't remember where they're from, but some scientists, I think in China actually, developed a, a way to essentially create what the amoeba sites are doing synthetically. Oh. So that we don't have to use wild caught or even like lab grown uh, horseshoe crabs anymore. Uh, now, there's a lot more testing to be done to make sure that it's still as effective because we can't be putting out bacteria uh, ridden vaccines, injecting that into people's bodies right 
So there's still some some room to grow there, but it is hopefully getting better. Now, trilobites, or trilobites, oh, I spoiled myself. I was going to compare them to trilobites. <laughs> Darn it. Dumb, dumb. Yeah, so a lot of people compare them to trilobites. These are the things that you might see at every fossil store or every rock store uh, and pretty much in every museum around the world. And maybe you found one for yourself. They're pretty common fossils. But they are not trilobites. Trilobites and horseshoe crabs are not closely related. They both just happen to have uh, or evolve in and have similar body plans because having a hardened exoskeleton that covers a good part of your body and the ability to just kind of walk very close to the ground or to the ocean floor to avoid predators from above, that just works, right? So both the trilobite and the horseshoe crab we're like, yep, I'm taking this body plan. And I'm just sticking with it. Now, the trilobite, of course, has been extinct for millions and millions of years. And somehow the uh, horseshoe crab was just able to survive all these mass extinctions events. No, no horseshoe crab around the world is, is endangered. They are considered it's at somewhat at risk. Um, mostly due to habitat destruction. So as we develop more and more beaches and we take away uh, more of that intertidal zone, their habitat is vastly shrinking. So that's where they're most at risk, not necessarily the, the overfishing or the, the baiting. Conservation methods are underway. People generally like them because they're just kind of cool looking creatures. So they're, they're lucky that they have that kind of intrinsic value or at least hum, like what we determine as intrinsic value to kind of help keep these these animals alive today uh, but that's that's all i got on the the horseshoe crab i think they're pretty cool i i had never seen one before i like in person before i had moved to massachusetts and every time we'd go out i would just stand there and just look at them and watch them kind of walk around and just do horseshoe crab things but it was just the most amazing thing i've ever seen they they are living fossils they look prehistoric that's really cool. Now I want to make it out to the ocean even more so, so I can see if I can find some of these guys. Yes. You you might be able to find lots of dead bodies of them. But what <laughs> happens is that when one dies, usually the softer inner parts of the body are eaten away, and what's left over is that hardened exoskeleton. And uh, you can wear it as a hat. Perfect. <laughs> so. I love hats. Yeah. Yeah, I expect a picture when you find it. <laughs> I was, I was going to suggest taking one home and putting it in like a, a small saltwater aquarium, but a hat yeah. works too. <laughs> I, I don't think they actually do that well in captivity, um, which is why wild ones are caught so often to essentially like bloodlet because they need lots of space to kind of move around. Mm, very cool. Thanks, Spencer. That was very interesting. Yeah. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Sean. I'm excited for who's next. <laughs> All, Zach, you didn't have another one, did you? Nope. I, I just focused on the Don Redwood. Gotcha. Uh, I, I have one more, and I know I Spencer and I at least were talking. We're like, well, maybe this episode won't be two hours long, and uh, here we are. are. So, <laughs> but, That's, that's uh, <laughs> why I chose one. <laughs> uh, maybe in the future we'll try to shorten these episodes a bit, but we're not, we're not doing great at that yet, so... If you have any, uh, if you like the longer episodes, please let us know. If you, you know, think it'd be better a little bit shorter, also let us know. But 
I'm gonna push Let us through know in the comment section. Yeah, yeah. Or Twitter. You know, tweet tweet at us. It's not Twitter. X us. X at us or however you say that verb now. At us, bro. At, at us. Um, but anyways, can I'll... we can we say uh, what our our handle is again for for all of our listeners out there? At Megatherium Pod is our Twitter handle. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Or X handle. I'm sorry. You know, someone's gonna sue me for that. I'm sure. Elon um, Musk. <laughs> he will. He's that yeah. type of guy. Yeah. I have no money, so he just just <laughs> he his, can just take his everything ego. I have, <laughs> and he'll get about four dollars. Yeah, but his ego <laughs> will get way bigger. So, mm-hmm. um, anyways, <laughs> kick your ass in, <laughs> in court. Uh. The last one, um, I, I, I'm excited actually about this to be the first in this group to discuss an insect. Uh, when when mm. the idea of doing this theme for the podcast was first suggested, uh, I instantly thought about this National Geographic article on a stick bug that was found that hadn't been seen in years and was thought to be extinct. And I wasn't sure if it'd fall under the category of a Lazarus taxon, but you know, after looking into what that means a bit more, it, it, it definitely does. And it may not have disappeared for a long period of time or even disappeared from the fossil records, but it was thought to be extinct. Uh, so it, you know, it counts from an ecological perspective. And so this insect uh, species name is Dryocosilus australis. Australis. I'm so bad at pronouncing scientific names. Um, me too. Bro. <laughs> Wait, Dryo. <laughs> Okay, spell well, it out for me. Well, I'll also just say the common name if you're about to look it up, because that is way easier to look up. But it's... <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, that is the Lord Howe's Island Stick Insect, a.k.a. the Tree Lobster. And I think the Tree Lobster is a great name for this. <laughs> um, but other stick insects, uh, like these tree lobsters, fall under the scientific order of Phasmatodia. The phasma part of the name refers to them being ghost or phantom-like, and this is a nod to their incredible camouflage. These insects have the natural ability to blend into their environment to a degree most prey animals wish they could replicate. Common names for these for insects in this order include stick bugs, leaf insects, walking stick insects, leaf, uh, bug leaves, and who knows what else. Uh, did you guys call them anything different during your childhood? I'm Pretty sure I just called them walking sticks, but did you guys yeah, have any? Stick bugs I called them or walking sticks. Okay. Yeah, I think I called them stick bugs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The right. way I would pronounce the Latin name is Dryococcalus australis. Dryococcalus. 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 Okay. Cool. Um, but I wanted to get into this a little bit. Uh, do Do you guys remember when these insects would have been under the order of Dictyoptera? instead of phasmatodia and this is maybe a bit of a sidetrack but uh just just from the time that we were kids to now uh things like you know these scientific orders have changed due to genetic uh testing to see you know what insects more closely related to you know which one purely based on genetics and before dictyoptera that that's what i was taught when i was in elementary school and middle school uh, used to include insects like walking sticks, uh, praying mantises, and actually cockroaches. But now they have split them all where 
mantises or mantodia and honestly th this this could have changed since i last you know learned this in grad school uh was walking sticks are in phasmatodia and cockroaches are in blatodia right i didn't say i, I didn't mess yes. that up all right and uh um termites you know they used to have isoptera as their order but genetic testing has shown that they're actually just a little you know diversion from cockroaches Closely related Little cockroaches. Baby roach. Yeah, and so they're now also Blatodia. But <laughs> I, I, in grad school, I helped out with FFA and 4-H stuff. And if for those of you who don't know, FFA stands for Future Farmers of America. And there's often some entomology contests where you're, you're identifying insects to uh, common name and order. And sa same with 4-H. And um, while I was... In, in grad school, you know, Dictyopter did not exist anymore, but it was still being taught by Indiana's 4-H programs, which were run by Purdue. And that I tried, I asked about why, why are we teaching this information if it's outdated and not correct anymore? And it was, it simply came down to the fact that they had printed a bunch of these books and they didn't want to print new books until they sold out of these old books. And I yeah. was very frustrated with that. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I, I would I don't, be too. Huh? <laughs> I'd be very frustrated with that. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. Like I, these books mean nothing anymore. No, absolutely nothing. Why are, why are nothing. we like, using these? We have better science and we are a school trying to help teach the public and we are teaching them incorrect information. That makes me wonder if like when they taught you Dictyoptera, if Dictyoptera even then didn't exist. You know, I didn't think about that till now and honestly, maybe it didn't. I They just pulled the wool over your eyes. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. But uh I mean, I, I do think, you know, genetic testing and stuff wasn't exactly huge when I was a child. It was kind of like more recent, but maybe, who knows? Yeah, that's definitely a more recent phenomenon. Um, but anyways, stick bugs. Uh, they're found on every continent but Antarctica. Tropical parts of the world have the highest diversity. No surprise there. Uh, but the single island of Borneo has over 300 species. Oh, cool. <laughs> can you think about all these like oh let me just grab this stick oh nope that's not a stick or let me touch this leaf nope that's also another phasmatodia like it'd be so cool i want to go to borneo so bad yeah P purely find a bunch of stick okay. bugs and just hang with an orangutan <laughs> yeah sean it's it sounds like we figured out our destination from our chat before the podcast borneo Wait, you guys, you guys were talking without me? Uh, we are waiting yeah. for you because someone didn't know how to download uh, Discord. Okay, it, it was loading. <laughs> it was updating 5 of 5 for like 10 minutes, okay? okay. I, I ended up like Xing out of the startup program and just restarting it to make it go. Okay. But yeah, so, you know, we're looking for an adventure in the future. And, you know, maybe maybe Borneo is where we go. Boys um, trip 2K24. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Okay, Sean, before you you dive back in, I do want to make a quick tangent mm -hmm. uh, about finding phasmids in the rainforest. So, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Sean, uh, I worked and lived in Puerto Rico for a little while. Yeah. 
specifically within the uh, El Yunque National Forest area outside of Luquillo. We were doing nocturnal surveys and the, uh, the other members of the night crew and I, we would see uh, these these stick insects all, all over the place. And each time we'd see one, we'd yell out, fun with fagnets. <laughs> and because they're so numerous, because it's the rainforest, we would yell that all the time. Yeah, and from as an entomologist, it was just my favorite. That's the oh, nerdiest gosh. thing I've ever heard. I it's love it. So nerdy. Fun with yeah, fast. Fun with fun with, <laughs> fun with. I can't even say that. Jesus. Gosh. Um, it's been a while since I've said it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, phasmids may you know they have the mimicry and they may be their first line of defense, but uh, they do have other ad- adaptations, including sharp spines and the ability to secrete toxins when startled or attacked. And uh, an- a- another really cool uh, fact about a lot of phasmids that kind of plays into uh, the rest of this story I'm going to tell is uh, they are parthenogenic. And if uh, this means that fertilization does not need to occur for eggs to be laid. Parthenogenesis occurs in a variety of organisms from plants and insects to reptiles and sharks. I feel like I could really get into the weeds of parthenogenesis if I wanted to. It's a fascinating process and topic, but I'll try to keep it short. Why do some animals... I I got one thing to add that you can probably cut because it might be offensive. But um, I heard a theory about uh, the Virgin Mary. And Gosh, Jesus yeah, being parthenogenesis. I I wasn't gonna make that joke. I wasn't going to. I thought of it. <laughs> so sorry. I've had like like eighty uh, percent of a bottle of wine. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, yeah, you can cut that. Part, but like, I just want to throw that one out there. Yeah, I I was on that mindset too. But uh, okay. So why, why do some animals experience this switch from sexual reproduction to this asexual method? It, it could be the season, uh, lack of males in the area, or current conditions favor a quick turnover. You know, fast reproduction in the normal, in the normal way of sex is slow. A waste of resources on males and, you know, you, you're going to risk modifying your genetics that are already thriving. So you need to, you know, get rid of the males and just get those eggs out. Bees are another example of parthenogenesis. Uh, I, th- I think you know, think of your local bumblebee. Queens overwinter after mating and be- begin producing female bees with the assistance of the sperm they receive in the fall. You, you won't see male bees until the end of the summer, the, the end of the following summer when a switch has occurred. And the queen bees are no, no longer laying fertilized eggs. So, you know, all, all year long she's laying fertilized eggs. They're becoming workers. All workers are females. But at the end of the year, she starts laying unfertilized eggs. These are males, also known as drones, and are haploid. They only contain one set of unpaired chromosomes. Haploid, kind of think half. While the queen and other workers are diploid, died too. Uh, producing males through pargen- parthenogenesis like this is called erinta- er- er- Oh my gosh. I looked this up <laughs> beforehand. Aeronautici. <laughs> er- Aeronautici. Phasmids, like our tree lobster, produce females through parthenogenesis, and this is called thalot. Oh, I also looked this up. Oh my gosh, thalotic thalite. Oh, thalite. I'm just gonna spell this because I'm not getting this at this point. It is 11:30 where I'm at. T h e l y 
T-O-K-Y. Zach, if you want to look that up while I continue on I Wait, wait. T- uh, can you spell it again? Sorry. T-H-E-L-Y. T-O. T-H-E-O. E-O. Wait. T-H-E-L-Y-E-O. T-O-K-Y. T-H-E-L-Y-T-O-K-Y. Thelidoke. Thelidoke, oh, I think. Oh, Thelidoke, yeah. Thelidoke. Okay, Thelidoke. Here we go. Continue on. Uh, and, and if you can produce both males and females through parthenogenesis, it's called deuterotoky. Nailed that one. Um, but, but, <laughs> yeah, brother. but enough on this side tangent. It'll come full circle, I promise. Um, back to the Lord Howe Island insect. As their name suggests, they were a common sight on the Lord Howe Island. For those of you who don't know, this is an island in the Tasman Sea between Australia and New Zealand. They, are, they were so common there that they are used as fishing bait. Uh, I first assumed that uh, the reason why they were thought to go extinct was due to you know, them being used too much as baits, but uh, it was actually due to rats. Around 1918, a ship came through, just, I guess, infested with black rats and accidentally introduced them to the island, and rats do as they do best and took over. Uh, these insects may have great camouflage from hiding from birds and maybe reptiles, but rats are another story. They'll, they'll eat anything. They're a mammal. They're smart. They have incredible senses of smell. And uh, they're basically just walking lamb chops to these rats. Uh, very, very slow-moving lamb chops at that. And, oh, I, I didn't discuss how big these were. I apologize. These things can get up to 8 inches in length and weigh 25 grams or roughly one ounce uh males are about a quarter of the size smaller than the ladies uh but that that is a big bug basically the length of my hand you know or you know slightly longer and not pencil thin no these guys were chunky they 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 tended to be you know one solid dark color either brownish or blackish um so definitely more on the stick side of this order rather than the leaf mimicry species and so so i said in 1918 black rats were introduced well by 1920 <laughs> there were no more insects left on lord hell island these rats decimated this population um and it wasn't until 1964 that some rock climbers on an island called balls pyramid uh, 14 miles south of lord Howe, found a dead tree lobster and side note Balls I Balls Pyramid Island, Zach, look it up. Oh my gosh, one of the coolest places I've ever seen, and it just looks like some epic island in the middle of the ocean that should have dragons or a castle on it or something. It's just like less than a oh, mile yeah. this long. This is this is straight out of Game of Thrones right here. Oh, it's just a towering peak of mountain. It's a it's just a spire. Yeah. poking out of the mountain J- just over this a kilometer cool. long and like a few hundred meters wide awesome but anyways i want to climb that so th- these guys found a dead one on this island in 1964 and more expeditions were sent here over the years but only carcasses were found until 2001 when australian scientists david priddle and nicholas carlisle set out with a couple of assistants in a hypothesis that this island had enough vegetation to support a population of these so there's, there's got to be live ones there and after searching through 
the island, which I, you've seen the pictures now. Like, imagining scouring that island, exploring There's it. There's no way. There's no way. <laughs> it's, it's just like, it's straight up. Yeah, it's just I, straight up. I, yeah. Like you would need to be a rock climber just to like access mm-hmm. this mountain. Oh yeah, or this island. I don't even know how it's a, they, it's a mountain. I don't even know how they park their boats. Seem too perilous to park their boat. Yeah, there's like, not even there's no shore. It's just this rock poking yeah. out of the mountain, <laughs> like out I, of the ocean. One you know rogue wave, your boat just got smashed into the side of this island that is a mountain, and I, I you know. Yeah, so whoever these assistants were that weren't named got to be, you know, kind of badasses too to, you know, help these scientists on this. And But after they were searching some of these perilous parts of this island, they found piles of large insect feces, uh, which led to them to think, all right, let's come back at night, <laughs> which just makes this Ooh. even more Ooh. crazy that they were you know rock climbing this it looks terrifying at nighttime and under a single shrub growing out of a crevice they found 24 individuals and the shrub is in the genus melaleuca melaleuca it was aka the tea trees and yes it is the same genus that you get tea tree oil from and i do not like tea tree oil um (laughs) Michelle had a tea tree for a while. Oh, I'm sure. It died really fast. <laughs> Probably because she didn't have these uh, tree lobsters to uh, take care of it. Because <laughs> that's what they do. <laughs> they take care of it. Yeah, they're, you know, pruning it. Yeah. Dead they're, go- they're eating, <laughs> eating all the leaves. Yes. Um, but anyways, after 81 years of thinking these insects were likely lost to the world... A couple crazy scientists and their assistants found them on the side of this seaside cliff. And probably their ability to help reproduce through parthenogenesis probably helped them out here. Like, their population can't be, like, climbing around this entire, like, mountain. I feel like they were bottlenecking themselves on this island. Like oh yeah, they were just, like... Crevices. That was just their refuge right there. Yeah. (laughs) And... I mean, you know, they didn't have to travel a whole lot. They, you could just reproduce without the males or um, they didn't want to risk you know, climbing around that mountain too much. And they, they beat the odds. And uh, there is more to this story. In, in 2003, a team was sent to collect two breeding pairs of these insects, which I realize kind of goes against what I just suggested about the parthenogenesis. If, you know, they're collecting pairs of these for breeding. But as you may know, um, I mean... If you have two breeding pairs, your genetic line is going to be a little bit better than if you're just using the same genes over and over and over again. Um, but one of these pairs... Was I've got for... a story about some parthenogenesis uh, when you're done. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but one of these pairs is for a private collector, which I don't know how... Like, they, they think this insect's extinct, and they're like, well, we're, we just found some. Would anybody like two? And this guy's like, "Yep, I'll I'll do that. I'll take I'll take two <laughs> dibs." <laughs> and then the other two went to the Melbourne Zoo, and a breeding program was established. And you know, a little difficulty at first to get them to breed, but they eventually it was successful, and the population grew to over a thousand adults and twenty thousand more eggs by twenty twelve. 
which was only nine years. Uh, nowadays, these insects are in zoos in San Diego, Toronto, and Bristol, England, and efforts are actually being made to eradicate the black rats from the island of uh, Lord Howe so that they can reintroduce these tree lobsters uh, to their native home. And someone may be questioning, like, well, these are found on two different islands. Uh, are, they, are we sure that they're the same species at this point? And genetic testing did uh, prove that they were within the range of uh, variability to call them the same species. Um, as, and if anybody's also curious, they, they are currently ranked as critically endangered but it seems like there's a large effort to prevent them from going extinct, which is which is good because I think they're pretty cool insects. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Not often do we get lucky as uh, as humans to actually have something that we thought we demolished through you know introducing another species that we actually get to bring back and take care of, and hopefully bring back completely mm -hmm. yeah we don't usually get a second chance at preserving a species like that that's actually really amazing yeah yeah like even just getting a first chance to preserve a species doesn't happen <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah don redwoods as an example <laughs> exactly. i mean perfect they'll they'll be in our backyards but like you know in the wild they're they'll be around for a little while but once they're gone they're gone they're gone Yep. Yep. But yeah, anyways, uh, my uh, my story about Parthenogenesis. Uh, so there is actually an insect in North America, invasive insect, let me I should I should add that is uh, invasive because it's parthenogenic. So the balsam woolly adelgid, a scale insect mm. that uh, affects fir trees is parthenogenic. And it can start so like it, it kills true fir trees. Uh, well, it doesn't always kill them. It damages and infests true fir species uh, of Abies species. Um, specifically in the West, it, the most vulnerable species is subalpine fir, Abies laziocarpa. Um, yeah, and so it just takes a single insect, a single, just one tiny little scale insect that's like almost impossible to see to start a brand new population. Jeez. And there's actually been two separate introductions, one in like I think the early the very early 1900s, like maybe even like the year 1900 on the East Coast. And then a little bit later, like within 20 years on the West Coast, and they know it's actually two separate introductions because all like every single one of these is a clone, hmm. essentially, because parthenogenesis is essentially creating a clone of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so there's two genetic clones on the East and in the West. And yeah, I was actually doing some surveys for it in uh, the Flat Tops Wilderness to see if we have it in Colorado because it was discovered and confirmed to be on our border with Utah. Um, but I didn't find it yet. That's good. Yeah, yeah. The key word being yet. Yeah, exactly. Yet it, it's on our doorstep, but <laughs> not here yet. Very cool. I mean, not really, but. It's interesting. It's fascinating is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
that's uh, I think that's all we have for this episode. I, I do want to say thank you for our listeners that we've uh, had so far. We can see that we're, we're we're getting some good listeners, and we've we've received some good feedback from you guys, and always encourage more. So uh, we hope you guys are learning stuff and enjoying listening to us while we hang out with each other and teach each other cool stuff. Yeah, and if you guys have any episodes or ideas of episodes for future podcasts, uh, let us know. We would love to do whatever you guys are interested in. That's exactly right. Uh, and to wrap up, we'll do our signature sound. How, how? How, how? How, how? How, how?